I'm going to read just two verses this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verses 5 and 6 is what we're going to read together in 1 Timothy chapter 2. The reason that we are reading verses 5 and 6 is because I believe that verses 5 and 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 2 serve as one of the most succinct, straightforward, and powerful statements of the work of the gospel in all of the New Testament, of what Jesus has done. This is good news, all of the bigness of the good news in one small package, and we're slowing down to make sure that we consider it. Last week, we read verses 1 through 8 and saw that Paul had an impetus. He told Timothy, you need to order the prayer in your church. You need to make sure that these things are happening to look outward. We consider intercession and the role that we have for people who are in high positions. But couched down in the middle of his cry for us to be better at praying, to consider others, he states one of the motivations that he has, and that is is that we have this unbelievable truth that we're carrying around. We have a stewardship that is the most important thing about who we are, and what happens out there No matter what happens out there, we need to have freedom and peace and godly dignified lives in here in order to properly carry and highlight this theological statement, this truth, Jesus as mediator. So why don't I read these verses? I want to pray for us, and then we will consider this truth. Hopefully, we'll we'll mull it over long enough so that we can really live in it. This is second, or First Timothy, second chapter, verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Let's take a moment and pray. God, we're grateful for a day like this, a morning like this, the opportunity that you give us to gather with brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for the fact that though you are completely and totally beyond us, you dwell with a kind of goodness and righteousness that we can hardly grasp. Your power and might is far beyond any power or might in this world. God, you are majestic beyond our description. All of our songs, all of our poems, all of the praying cannot capture your fullness. And so I pray this morning we would not take for granted that we call you that God, the other, the one beyond, the majestic and powerful, we call you Father. And more than that, God, you as our Father, thank you for speaking to us. We thank you this morning for Scripture. We thank you for good news in a world that often spins and strives and has no rest. I pray that as we consider these verses, and mainly as we consider Jesus, that we would hold on to him, that he would be our hope, that he would be the main message that we have for the world, no matter what is happening around us. God, I ask that for all of us here who have 
just really persistent stubbornness and hardness of heart, or just a lack of awareness of ourselves or of you, Spirit of God, would you bring conviction? Chip away at our pride. We pray as well, Holy Spirit, as we come with contrite hearts and as we've confessed our sins, for those of us who are struggling and doubting and in a constant swirl of discouragement, Spirit of God, bring comfort. Build us up to be more faithful to Jesus. We pray all of this in His name. Amen. In 1963, a young man named Herb Cohen, I'm pretty sure when it's a name, it's Herb. When you eat it, it's an herb. Are we agreed on this? Okay. So, Herb Cohen, in 1963, a young man who was an insurance claims adjuster, but had displayed being adept in negotiating, gave a lecture to a small group of lawyers. The topic of the lecture was on negotiation and mediation. This was, as far as anyone can tell, the first foray, the first step into this kind of work for young Herb. However, this entry into the world of negotiation and mediation would soon build and build and build, leading to a point where in the future, Herb Cohen would be regarded as the greatest negotiator in the 20th century. Dignitaries and leaders around the world over would clamor for his services. It was stated openly that if you really found yourself in, and this is a political term, a pickle, you, that was supposed to be, anyway, no one said that. But if you find yourself in a very distressed, disturbing, difficult situation between parties, the man that you want is Herb Cohen. He was, after all, the man who was giving advice or giving warnings at the time to Jimmy Carter as the situation in Iran got worse and worse and worse and hostages were being taken. He was also the man that, though he was disregarded in the previous administration, that Ronald Reagan listened to most closely and called not only the strategies to release these hostages, but down to the very hour that they would be released. Mr. Cohen seemed to have a keen and persistent awareness of humankind, of the realities of both the strengths and the weaknesses a constant awareness of the problems and perhaps the real problem that was at the root of the issue. He was a consistent and uncompromised truth teller when it came to humankind and behavior. One statement that has been attributed to him that I think allowed him to be such a good negotiator, he said this, all behavior no matter how outlandish, appears appropriate to its initiator. All behavior, no matter how outlandish, appears appropriate to its initiator. I think that Mr. Cohen had an understanding of desires and needs 
and problems and the way that people interact in those moments. I bring up this man and his work because the world of mediation, the world of negotiating is such a critical skill at a time and in a place and between parties when there is so much conflict. And it turns out that whatever Mr. Cohen was doing, and I do not know his religious affiliations, I don't believe that he has a kind of healthy fear of God that would lead him to Jesus, but he is perhaps one of the best human examples of the kind of thing that Jesus accomplishes for us that is at the very heart of the gospel. If you're going to open your mouth and speak good news out there in the world, what people want to know is I can be at rest and at peace and problems can be dealt with. There can be actual peace. We can come to terms. I can be satisfied on the other side of this conflict. That is a good word that we speak to the world. It's what Paul has been telling Timothy here in the context of this chapter. He realizes that Timothy is about to break. He's about to shatter. He sees everything going on around him. He knows the conflict in his, his own church. There have these, been these men who are gifted and prominent teachers who have shipwrecked their faith completely. And I believe that what Paul wants Timothy to remember, to not only hear this good news for himself, but then also to remember that it's this pearl, it's this gem, it's this stewardship that he's given that is the most important thing for him to hold on to and for him to proclaim. It is a testimony given at its proper time. So I would state it like this. Before we consider Jesus as mediator, and this is one of his main ministries, it is in fact what he came to do to bridge the gap between God and men. Before we get there, I would say that in the spirit of 1 Timothy, we said that 1 Timothy chapter 1 was largely about ordered thinking. The beginning of chapter 2 is ordered worship, beginning with our prayer. And right at the heart then of this ordered worship is a kind of ordered priority, a right priority of this fact that Jesus came as the one and only mediator between the one God to fix our one problem. And as we consider Jesus as mediator, those are going to be the three big considerations. First, we want to consider, and you need to reckon with this idea, there is one God. There is one God. What does that mean? It's the cry of the Bible from beginning to end. There is one God. Second, in order to get the idea that Jesus is a mediator, and for it to matter to you, you need to realize, and you need to really ingest and chew on, or maybe you chew on it first and you ingest it, there is one problem. There is one deep and abiding problem for all humankind. One God, one problem. And then finally, what a statement from Scripture. There is one mediator. Not many. Not competing mediators. But only one. It's as though Paul has said to Timothy, I want you to pray for everyone because there is a God for everyone. And there is a mediator for everyone. And everyone needs to know this. All of those people out there breaking under the pressure of their lives. So, first thing we need to consider, and this matters because we're going to introduce one party. This is one party of this conflict that has been going on since the Garden of Eden. 
And he is, in fact, the main actor and the main party to the conflict. He comes to the mediation, one God. He says it plainly. Verse 5, it starts out, For there is one God, and what he desires matters most. So, Timothy, it doesn't, in some ways, it doesn't matter what you desire as a church or what the people who are causing problems in your church desire. There is one God, and he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So, remember this. There is one God. Now, this statement has served as the undergirding reality and truth of the people of God since the beginning. It is, in fact, what God introduced himself as in each of the times that he is named. It is what the entirety of the Ten Commandments seeks to protect in the first number of commandments at least. It is what God taught the people of Israel to teach their children as they were going by the way and as they walked and as they sat at the dinner table. Remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Here's perhaps the most succinct example in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am God. There is one God. This is what Isaiah is hearing from God's mouth. Now, I think increasingly to take for granted or to not pay attention to the reality that there is one God and it's the key to having peace with him would be a dangerous thing, especially in a world that is increasingly pluralistic. We live now in a fully bloomed, not a budding, but a fully bloomed pluralistic society. This society believes that every belief system, every religion is more or less on par, needs to be treated with the same level of dignity. Now, I'm all for dignity, of course, and respect and listening, but to treat every belief or every religion as equal in validity is the heartbeat of our society. In fact, it is often celebrated and totally fine to believe in a God of sorts. That word is thrown around now more than ever. To believe in a God is fine so long as, this is one of the hallmarks of a pluralistic society. Why is that a hard word to say? This is one of the hallmarks. It is wonderful to believe it is wonderful to have convictions. It's wonderful to hold on to things, especially and even a God, so long as that God, in your view, doesn't act like, you know, God. So it's fine to believe in a God as long as he doesn't say he's actually a God over all of the other gods that are not gods. The moment you insist that there is one God, one God to rule them all, right? As long as you pull back from saying that, you're totally fine. But here's the interesting thing, to even use the word God, and most of the time, even in Scripture when it's described this way, uh, all of the claims to gods are, you know, lowercase God, and then God himself insists on, in fact, his, the word Lord, I am the Lord, is capitalized all the way through. Here's the interesting thing about living in a pluralistic society. To claim that something or someone is God seems to imply or to believe that if this God can be at peace with and sort of just hanging out in, a, in the, the restaurant of all these other gods and just, you know, playing cards together, 
Here's the interesting thing about that belief. It's as though God, whatever God is in that pluralistic society, is aware that all these other gods are also claiming these things, and he's cool with it. And what the Bible insists from the beginning is that there is one God, and because he's the actual God, he cares about the claims of the false gods. It's why he insists to Isaiah, no, no, listen, 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 say this as much as you can. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. For God to be God, he must rule. For God to be God, he must have authority. For God to be God, he must be set apart. However, if your claim to a God is merely personal, or if your claim to God is diverse, uh, what I mean diverse in the sense that numerous, or kind of everywhere and whatever you make it to be, but he claims no authority and has no functional authority in the world, well, then he can more or less be ignored. And ultimately what happens in many pluralistic societies is that there is the garb of religious belief, there are the fine trappings of religious practice, but everyone deep down more or less thinks, well, you could take it or leave it, right? But God does not allow us, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God who speaks to Isaiah, and the God who rules over all does not allow us this. There is one God and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. What this means is we must come to terms with him. There's no working around him. He's the final boss. You don't get to beat the game until you come to terms with or reconcile with this one God. To insist over and over and over again on the glory of God and to meditate on his majesty and to proclaim his holiness and to insist again and again on his right to judge the world in righteousness is to gird up our souls and to remember that no matter what else we accomplish in life, if we have not come to terms with, if we are not at peace with this one God, then we are lost. That's the claim that is being made here. And I do not want us to ever read our Bibles and to have throwaway statements like that. For there is one God, la, 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 yada, yada. One day, you will stand before the judgment seat, the one judgment seat of this one God. And all peoples, everywhere and at all times, will be judged by his one standard, and his one word, either free and redeemed and welcomed in the name of Jesus or rejected and under wrath and lost forever, that is the one judgment that will matter more than anything else. So this statement, what we insist upon, is that there is a God and there will come a reckoning. To ignore him is not good enough. It's perilous. It's dangerous to your soul. So that statement undergirds everything. And if you talk with someone 
and you try to explain to them the gospel, or you give them this good news that you could be reconciled through what Jesus did, but they do not acknowledge nor bow down to or give any kind of humility toward, this, toward God, you're going to get nowhere with them. If I told you you needed to be at peace with the God of wheat, it probably wouldn't take up too much of your schedule. But because there is one God with one judgment for all peoples, we need to come to the table. We need a mediator. More than that, okay, so imagine... Imagine a person coming to grips with the idea that there is one God. They're waking up to it. They're realizing, wait, you mean I'm going to have to give an account? It's like finding out that you owed back taxes you knew nothing about. Wait, you're telling me the IRS has authority and they can throw me in jail and this is going to get bad? Well, then, the first thing that person would do when they awoke to this problem or to this God is they would ask this question. Well, how much do I owe? Am I in good standing? Is there, a, is, there a, is there a ledger somewhere? Maybe I'm okay. Maybe I just ignored it. Maybe I would just be able to slide by. So that's the second idea. It's the thing that leads us to the need for a mediator like Jesus. Not only is there one God who gets to judge and has every right to judge and rules over all, but all of us have one major problem. And that is, is that we have been separated by sin. The wages of sin is death. In the day that you sin, you shall surely die. And everyone needs to be motivated by the idea that not only is God going to be the one who judges, but that all of us, there's one mediator between God and men. On one side of the table is God, who has all power and authority. And then on the other side of the table is weak little us. Stubborn us. Selfish us. Lying, cheating Stealing us. Ignorant. Willfully violent. Malicious us. Insecure. Unloving. Unkind us. There is a problem that we all have. And more than that, the problems that we have leave us in a position where we can't negotiate with this God who is perfect. In fact, the relationship has been entirely and totally severed. One of my favorite descriptions of the main problem that all mankind have is the book of Job. And here, I believe, is one of the greatest challenges and one of the miracles of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he needs to convince all of us that we are more Job than we thought. You ever considered the book of Job? You ever thought about it? It's just a tale of misery from start to finish. Everything bad that ever happens, that ever could happen, basically does. And Job is in a spot where he is realizing increasingly the depth of his need, the depth of his suffering, and he is completely and utterly helpless and has no control over the situation. His friends come and they try to help him and they describe this thing. And then in Job chapter 9, really the entirety of the chapter, Job describes his main problem. 
And that is the fact that he can't even get a, he can't even get a, a meeting with God, let alone work this out. In Job chapter 9, the entirety of it, entirety of it but really specifically verses 32 and 33, I think described in succinct terms one of the best instances, one of the best descriptions of what it's like, the problem that we have, not only that we're separated, but that we're not like God and we can't call a meeting with Him. I'm going to read the 33rd verse. This is what he cries out in the midst of his suffering when he realizes the depth of his problem. He says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's just said prior to this, as a summary of what he's thinking about concerning God, he realizes the massive chasm, the, pre- the fact that God can do what he wants and he's totally in control and that he is powerless and he cries out just prior to this, for he is not a man as I am that I might answer him. How could we ever come to trial together? That's what Job declares. His friends have come, they've spoken into his, his world, and then he summarizes the entirety of the problem, and he says this, here's the problem, God is God, and he's way up there, and I'm not God, and here's the thing, we can't come to trial together because I'm not God, so I can't go there, but God is not man, so he can't come here. How are we ever going to come to terms? There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. And it's there in Job chapter 9 that we see the heartbeat, a longing for the work of Jesus. The gospel is found all through the Bible from beginning to end. For those of us who live on the other side of Christ and has been given light of the Spirit, I want to jump into the pages of Job. I want to dive down in there in the midst of his crying and saying, I can't go there because I'm not God, and God can't come here because he's not man. I just want to go in and show him into the future. I want to say, jump in my DeLorean. We're going. I want you to see. Job has realized that not only is there one God, but there's one major problem. We're separated from him. There is an inescapable reality of our separation and our sin. And what Paul is telling Timothy to get things ordered in the church, what he's describing to him is the reality that no matter what other problems are flowing around him, and I agree that the world can be an unbelievably complicated place. There are kinds of suffering that we must pay attention to. There are real tangible needs that we must dive into and say, we're going to help. True Pure, undefiled religion is to take care of widows and orphans in their affliction. There is real action to be done. However, this is a debut, it's a both and. What Paul is telling Timothy is that the real problem that everyone has is sin, that we have been separated from God by the reality of sin. And it is a debt that we cannot pay. It is a gap that we cannot bridge. And sometimes, and I believe that maybe Timothy is experiencing this in this church in Ephesus that may be relatable to our time, 
Sometimes when we take so much effort to think about all the implications in every spinning complication of a fallen world, trying to even keep up with the news, problems beget problems beget problems. There's a proverb that says, for the wicked, wickedness and evil is like sport. They invent ways to compete. It can be exhausting to try to even keep up with all of the shapes and forms of evil around us. And what I believe that Timothy is being instructed to do is to pay attention that we don't lose the main problem. So, people experiencing suffering, people in the midst of ongoing and continuing injustice, hardened hearts full of prejudice and hate, desires that are left unchecked that wreak havoc in our personal lives, our inner lives, and the people around us, our consistent insisting on our own identities and our self-righteousness, all of these things, they are real and they can be tended to and the gospel speaks to them, but we don't want to ever lose the forest for the trees. So in the midst of speaking to the major issues of the world, we can and we must always come back to and remind people, yes, that's a problem, but you know what else is a problem? We're not reconciled to God, and sin will separate us from Him forever. I heard a pastor once say, I want to be helpful in the world. I really do. I want to be deeply helpful, but most of all, I want to be eternally helpful. I want to remember that there is a, a kind of problem that people have that is deeper and really becomes the source of all of the other problems. So I hope you hear me here. I am not calling for an oversimplification of the world. If someone comes to you and says, I have a real difficulty, can you help me? You should listen to them and actually think about the problems that they're experiencing. Do not stare blankly at them and just say, well, your problem is sin. Well, your problem is sin. Well, your problem is sin. Now, that is true, but you need to listen to them. However, in your listening, don't be the kind of person who is not courageous enough to remind them that the major problem they have, that ultimately the thing that they're going to face is a judgment from God, and if they are unreconciled, and if they have not found forgiveness for their sins, if they have not realized their need for and experienced the ministry of a mediator, they're going to be lost, and it's far worse than any temporal problem that they're facing. I hope that makes sense. Paul has just told Timothy, Timothy, in the midst of all the craziness, people are betraying you and we're having to hand them over to Satan. Remember, though, in the midst of all of this, we have to keep on mission. There's a stewardship we've been given. We have to remind everyone that there is one God and there's a major problem, and it's the source of all of the other problems that we see, and that is our sin and the fact that we have no arbiter. And that leads us to this very strong statement that Paul makes concerning Jesus and his ministry. And that is this, that in addition to there being one God and one problem that we all have, there is one mediator. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about mediators, 
I generally think about, you know, calm people or people who can get things done or people who are bold sometimes or people who are gracious. I don't know what you think about for the, the best resume for someone who's a mediator. I had to look up. I hadn't really heard of Herb Cohen, I have to admit. That was like a, a Google search kind of thing. And I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about mediator or what kind of resume should be there. I've probably told this story before because after all, we've hung out for almost eight years now, you and I. But when I think of a resume for a mediator, I think of someone more qualified than ninth grade me. And the reason I think of someone more qualified than ninth grade me is because in my ninth grade at the time, it was a junior high, seventh, eighth, and ninth. The administration there had the grand idea to start what they called a peer mediation program. They saw that the main problem that they were having in their school, or what they thought, was that there was a lot of conflict between students and administration was uh, having a hard time reaching them. It's as though what they saw was that every student who was fighting or having problems or, you know, angry over the wrong boy or whatever they were called in, in recess, they thought that everyone recognized that they had a Job problem, that the administration was there and you're not a student and a student is not an administrator. So they came up with a peer mediation program and here's what they did. Upon recommendation, and I don't even know how, I didn't have to fill out any application or something, a number of fellow students and I were invited to become peer mediators. And what would happen is anytime there was a terrible fight that had broken out or some kind of conflict that couldn't be resolved, we would be invited in by the administration to sit with those students and help them figure it out. As you can imagine, this went horribly. It was one of the worst ideas that I'd ever seen in educational administration. I got called out of a class I go into a side room off the principal's office. It needed to be, you know, safe and not intimidating. And I get invited in and introduced in there by the principal of the school. And sitting in there are two girls who I barely know at all, who clearly have been crying and yelling and had gotten into a fight. And they're freaking out over some boy or some names that they were even called. And the principal has me sit down in a chair across from them and go through a set list of questions to listen to them and to fix this problem. It was the most awkward 20 minutes of my entire life. I don't believe either of them said a single word. I mean, what were they going to do? Hello, fellow ninth grade boy who is trusted by our administration. We're so glad that you're a mediator, and not only that, but you're a peer, a peer mediator. Let me tell you what she called me and how I felt about it. Because I'm, really I'm really insecure and sensitive about my body. I mean, like, what are they going to say? So they sat there more furious. And after reading through the thing for 20 minutes, I resigned from the peer mediation program. <laughs> my resume was not good. It was conceived of in an ill manner. It simply did not work. Jesus had a better resume than this. He answers perfectly the call, the cry of Job. How could God, who is not man, come here? And how could man, who is not God, come there? And Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, the man, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, who eternally existed and was in the beginning and through whom and for whom all things exist, Christ Jesus, who is God himself, took on human flesh. He became man. 
And in him, in this one person, we have God-man and man-God. He is perfectly suited with the unique resume to be a mediator between us with one problem and the one God who is the rightful judge. So the text points out in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that this Christ Jesus became the man. It represents the work that Jesus did in coming in the incarnation. His birth is mentioned here. But more than that, not only his birth, but his death is mentioned here. He gave himself as a ransom for all. So not only does Jesus have a unique resume in the sense that he was God eternally existing, became man of the incarnation, but then he lived a perfect life. And upon his own testimony, Matthew chapter 20, verse, verse 28, it's also recorded in Mark chapter 10, but Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was a go-between. He took the punishment for our sin. He went to the table. He went to the judgment seat and took our punishment. Representing all man, he went to God. And because he was God, he was able to forgive and absorb the punishment due us. So Jesus, in his unique birth, in his unique eternal existence, and in his unique life and then death, serves as a perfect mediator for us. No one else will do because no one else went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice and a ransom for us. Just one note in this First Timothy passage, it's as though Paul doubles down on this word. The word in Matthew chapter 20 means to be instead of. And then that word instead of, this word for ransom, Paul actually adds a prefix on top of it that means in place of. It's two prepositions jammed together in place of instead of. Jesus came in order to be in place of instead of us. He's a unique mediator. More than that, and sometimes not thought about, suppose that Jesus had come and he had forgiven all the sins of the world up to that point. What would happen? I mean, how long would it take for us to get back in the same pickle? Five minutes? You ever really defeated sin in your life? Felt good about it? Been so humble you were proud of it? Then you think to yourself, wait, how did I get back here? I was over this. So here's something that's unique about Jesus' resume, and people don't often think about. He came in the flesh, though eternally existing. He was born into this world. He lived and died as a ransom, but more than that, he rose from the dead, ascended, and now sits forever as a mediator. Because here's the thing about you and I, God is still judge and we still sin. We need a mediator constantly, which is why Hebrews rejoices in the media, mediatorial, mediatorial, that's a word, work of Jesus. Here's perhaps the most succinct way to say it, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The depth of the problem was such that Jesus knew he needed to come and pay the penalty, the, the ransom fee to be instead of in place of us on the cross. But then more than that, the depth of the problem required that someone stay at the table continually. 
he rose and he went to the judgment seat and he sat down there to welcome forever, there to be an intercessor forever. He is an ongoing mediator because we are ongoing idiots. Our needs never go away. But in Christ, because he has gone before us and been instead of us and in place of us and taken the wrath of God, because he rose again and now sits at God's right hand, any time we call out to him and come in his name and where his spirit is found in us, we can be at peace because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Can you imagine how much of a bummer that would be? To trust in Jesus because he knew he died for your sins, but then get to heaven and he's just gone, he's just not there. You showed up and you said to yourself, well, but Jesus said I'd be forgiven and now you have this awkward conversation with God, the judge of the world, because you claim you came clothed in your own righteousness at that point. He needs to be there forever. So the questions that we ought to be asking, the thing that we ought to be saying to ourselves as a church, as Christians, is how do we engage in the world in such a way where this reality, where we describe to people the fact that there is one God, and there is one problem that really is the source of all the other problems, and the myriad displays of craziness and wacky evil in the world. How do we continually operate as a people and as a church so that this reality stays the center of what we do? All of the things that may animate us, the things that leave us stirred up, we leave them to God in prayer, and we go back to remembering the thing that ought to animate us the most. And that is that we live on the other side of this wonderful testimony given at the proper time. We have an answer to Job's problem. We have a righteousness that is not our own. We have a hope that will never fail. We have a mediator who is perfect. He's never, ever once failed those who come in his name. If you have Jesus Christ as your advocate, you will be set free. Period. This good news mustn't ever get muddied in the waters of the rest of what we might call regular life. In order to do this, I think we need the ministry of the Spirit. It's a both-and kind of thing. We are not closing our eyes and putting our fingers in our ears and pretending that the needs of the world around us are not there. We're just convinced that there is one main answer to all of the craziness of the world. And we want to be clear here. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us, even practically speaking, when we feel the turmoil of our souls. I pray that we wouldn't seek other mediators other coping mechanisms, other ways out. We thank you for being our rescue. We thank you for being our advocate. We thank you for living always to make intercession for us. 
God call us back? Why, why do we seek other paths? Why do we try to make our own way? Why do we continue trusting in other pursuits? We thank you for the testimony concerning your son, and I ask God that we would declare him consistently, not only to our own souls, but to the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.